And then, oddly enough, one finds him mentioned in the correspondence of Arthur Hicks, the poet. You remember Filmer, Hicks writes to his friend Vance. Well, he hasn't altered a bit. The same hostile mumble and the nasty chin. How can a man contrive to be always three days from shaving? And a sort of furtive air of being engaged in sneaking in front of one. Even his coat and that frayed collar of his show no further signs of the passing years. He was writing in the library, and I sat down beside him in the name of God's charity, whereupon he deliberately insulted me by covering up his memoranda. It seems he has some brilliant research on hand that he suspects me, of all people, with a bodily booklet of printing, of stealing. He has taken remarkable honours at the university. He went through them with a sort of hasty slobber, as though he feared I might interrupt him before he had told me all, and he spoke of taking his DSC as one might speak of taking a cab. And he asked what I was doing, with a sort of comparative accent, and his arm was spread nervously, positively a protecting arm, over the paper that hid the precious idea, his one hopeful idea. Poetry, he said, poetry, and what do you profess to teach in it, Hicks? The thing's a provincial professorling in the very act of budding, and I thank the Lord devoutly that but for the precious gift of indolence I also might have gone this way to DSC and destruction. A curious little vignette that I'm inclined to think caught Filmer in or near the very birth of his discovery. Hicks was wrong in anticipating a provincial professorship for Filmer. Our next glimpse of him is lecturing on Rubber and rubber substitutes to the Society of Arts. He had become manager to a great plastic substance manufactory, and at that time, as it is now known, he was a member of the Aeronautical Society, albeit he contributed nothing to the discussions of that body, preferring, no doubt, to mature his great conception without external assistance. And within two years of that paper before the Society of Arts, he was hastily taking out a number of patents and proclaiming in various undignified ways the completion of the divergent inquiries which made his flying machine possible. The first definite statement to that effect appeared in a halfpenny evening paper through the agency of a man who lodged in the same house with Filmer. His final haste after his long, laborious secret patience seems to have been due to a needless panic, Bootle, the notorious American scientific quack, having made an announcement that Filmer interpreted wrongly as an anticipation of his idea. Now, what precisely was Filmer's idea? Really, a very simple one. Before his time, the pursuit of aeronautics had taken two divergent lines, and had developed, on the one hand, balloons, large apparatus lighter than air, easy in ascent, and comparatively safe in descent, but floating helplessly before any breeze that took them, and on the other, flying machines that flew only in theory, vast flat structures heavier than air, propelled and kept up by heavy engines, and for the most part, smashing at the first descent. But, neglecting the fact that the inevitable final collapse rendered them impossible, the weight of the flying machines gave them this theoretical advantage, that they could go through the air against the wind, a necessary condition if aerial navigation was to have any practical value. It is Filmer's particular merit that he perceived the way in which the contrasted and hitherto incompatible merits of balloon, 
and heavy flying machine might be combined in one apparatus, which should be at choice either heavier or lighter than air. He took hints from the contractile bladders of fish and the pneumatic cavities of birds. He devised an arrangement of contractile and absolutely closed balloons, which, when expanded, could lift the actual flying apparatus with ease, and when retracted by the complicated musculature he wove about them, were withdrawn almost completely into the frame. And he built the large framework which these balloons sustained of hollow, rigid tubes, the air in which, by an ingenious contrivance, was automatically pumped out as the apparatus fell, and which then remained exhausted so long as the aeronaut desired. There were no wings or propellers to his machine, such as there had been to all previous aeroplanes, and the only engine required was the compact and powerful little appliance needed to contract.